0: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Chris Epting. He is a co-author of a brand new book called Long Train Runnin', our story of the Doobie Brothers, along with the band's founders, Pat Simmons and Tom Johnston. Chris has also written a bunch of other music books, including other bios with the artists, and some fascinating and fun books on pop music culture. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Definitely. uh, It's going to be a fun conversation. You've written a ton of music books, so I have to ask how you got into that. You
2: know, I write about things I'm passionate about. And music is right at the top of the list. They always tell you, if, you know, I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. And any advice I ever got from anybody was find what you're passionate about because it'll never really feel like you're working at writing. It'll feel more like a hobby. And so certain things for me like music, travel, baseball, history, I've got certain topics that that really energize me and excite me. And music is right at the top of that list. So I had been working as a music journalist for a number of years. And I wrote a couple of music travel books like Weird History, where to find like where album covers were shot and famous concerts were held and things like that. But as a journalist, I, I had a chance to interact with um, a lot of different musicians over the years and subsequently developed some relationships that in some cases led to writing their memoirs with them, which was really uh, something I never saw coming, but something I'm very happy that happened.
0: Yeah, I saw that a good number of your books are written along with the artist. Um, and I'm just curious how that comes about. Was it references or intros from other musicians?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it, it, eventually it gets to references. For me, it started with a guy named Phil Collin from Def Leppard. And I had written a lot about Def Leppard, got to know them to a degree, especially Phil. And and we became like friends. And we were driving to a show in San Diego, I think. And we're just going driving down the freeway. And I said to him, have you ever thought about writing your story? Because I was at a point as a writer where I was thinking about, okay, what's my next thing going to be with books? What's the next sort of thing I can tackle? And I had never co-written a memoir with anybody. And I thought, well, I get to know these guys. Why not try and tell their stories? So Phil kind of scoffed and said, well, I don't think anybody would be interested in my life or what I have to say. And I said, you know, I said, you guys really, you guys being like rock stars, A lot of you become numb to the life that you live, like you don't find it interesting, but you're so inside the bubble that you don't get how fascinating it all is, given where you come from as well, which in many cases is not from a lot. So I do think there's a story there. Why don't we try it? Why don't we just kind of see how it goes and what the process is like, and maybe we'll figure something out. And he said, all right. And that was really it. And and we took about a year to write that book. And I loved the process. I loved having a project um, that was long, long form like that with somebody who was really interesting and a band that I always found interesting. So, you know, you become like a an inner circle kind of person and you begin hearing things. You start as a writer, you have to begin figuring out, okay, what's, gonna, what's the book going to be? It can't just be, you know, a soup to nuts biography. You've got to find, you know, certain stories that are, that, really stand out that have some sort of universal truth uh, that, you know, will kind of go beyond just the music world, you know, and resonate with a lot of people. So we worked long and hard on that book. Um, Simon and Schuster published it. So it was a good publisher, and it did well. And I loved the experience. And so I began thinking about who else I knew. And again, it wasn't something I was really mapping out. I thought, well, if it happens again, it'll be good. And I was having a conversation with John Oates from Hall & Oates. Uh, Again, similar thing. He and I had developed a bit of an acquaintanceship because I had written a lot of things about him and things that he liked. John was always very particular about saying, you know, I think you really understood where I was coming from on this song or this record or whatever. So, uh, again, one day I I had said to him, "Um, any interest in ever writing your memoir? And he said, no, no, nothing I ever want to do. And uh, he said, why? And I said, well, you know, I, I'd be interested in working on it with you if you did. I said, beyond that, I had kind of an idea of how we might work together. I knew he was a writer. He was a journalism major at Temple University. I knew he wrote. In my head, I had this idea of how we might work together. And he goes, well, what would it be? What did you envision? And I said, well, you don't want to do it, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and he goes, well, wait a minute, let me least hear the idea. And I, and I explained to him uh, the kind of process I envisioned. And he said, you know what? He goes, that I would do. That actually sounds really fun. I would give that a shot. And it was a simple process where I thought that if we made a list of the best stories of his life, split them up, he would write half, I would write half. Then we would trade and kind of edit each other's work. I thought collaboratively, that would be something that would be unique and, and produce some good work. And, and to that end, it became the single most satisfying writing experience of my life, literally. I mean, I, I, I mean, I saw John just the other night, all in us was in town and whenever we get together, we talk about writing that book and just all it did for us mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, it was a really great process. So from that, you know, word gets out and you hear from other people and um, and things just go from there.
0: Yeah. I want to get to your process because uh, your your list is fascinating. I'm just curious how that morphs, but I do want to talk about your latest book. Uh, It is also with the founders of the band who are the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. And these guys were a bedrock of classic rock. And I have to ask both, how did this come about? I'm going to assume you're a fan because everyone at that time was. Big time. And what, what it was like working with them. Well,
2: for starters, I, yeah, I've always been a big fan of the Doobie Brothers, and they're a band that, as a fan of music, I always felt like they never really got their just due. I mean, critically, I don't know why, but it always felt like critics looked down their noses at the Doobie Brothers. They loved, like, the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead and the band. They, they had, like, all this, the Eagles, always got all this, maybe not so much of the Eagles, but from critics, uh, all this credibility. And the Doobies, to me, were, they they came out of the Bay Area scene they managed to get over losing a primary member in Tom Johnston, completely reinvent themselves with Michael McDonald, not unlike what Fleetwood Mac did, bringing in Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. I just thought their story was so fascinating because they never, no matter what happened to them, all the different band members and this kind of you know, revolving doors, they always managed to come up with something that was good and authentic and successful. And that's not easy to do. So I was a fan and, and about... Gosh, it's got to be about five years or so ago now. I was writing an article for the Huffington Post with a woman named Chris Simmons, who's Pat Simmons' wife. And she, like Pat, is a motorcycle enthusiast. I mean, they're really into motorcycles, antique bikes and cross-country trips, and they're they're the real deal. And Chris was um, riding cross-country as part of this kind of cannonball run sort of thing. And I wrote, I interviewed her and wrote about it. And she said, why don't you come down to Carlsbad where we're going to wind up and we can meet in person and I can really show you what this whole thing's about. So I said, great. So I went down to Carlsbad and Pat happened to be with her. And so uh, the three of us were talking pretty much for the whole day. And they had a dinner that night as part of the motorcycle rally, which they invited me to. And three of us went to the dinner. Pat was telling some great stories over dinner and Chris kind of nudged and said, you should write Pat's book. So I didn't even have to bring it up. (laughs) And as I would soon learn, wives really do have a lot of power in these decision-making events, you know. And and Pat was sort of like, yeah, sort of like Phil. I don't know if anybody really care about it. And we loosely we exchanged numbers. We said, look, I said, let's just talk about it. Let's see where it leads. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But either way, we had a great night, and that was that. And we stayed in touch over the next couple of months. Subsequently, right after that, I was doing a little book tour with John Oates. We were up in San Francisco. And Tom Johnston's wife came to watch us, she and, and their daughter. Um, there was a connection through a publicist, through, through John, I think. And anyway, after the event, she came over to me and said, you need to write my husband Tom's book. He needs to do this. I liked hearing how you were with John. And I said, well, let's talk about it. So the Doobies were playing um, not long after that. And I went backstage. It was at the Forum in LA. And we all met, me and Tom and Pat. And we had a great conversation pre-show. And... And, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, both guys have amazing stories. They both could warrant individual memoirs, but I thought, wouldn't it be much more interesting to blend it into one book and make it a Doobie Brothers book? Because these were the founding members and they're still there. And they've, their personal journeys to get to that point were so intertwined and so complicated and dramatic and interesting. So I presented that to them. We had this meeting one day up in LA where the band came down and we just sat there over a table and, they, and I basically presented how I envisioned how it might work. And there was a lot of conversation about it and a little bit of, they didn't just jump right into it. There were definitely some tensions there, which I liked because I thought, okay, if we do this book, there's things in there that are interesting, that are gonna create some drama within the book. And they agreed to it eventually. And then we just got to it. And I would work with each guy independently and then sort of compare notes and stories. And when you're working on a book like that, you got to be in person a lot. So I, I saw the Doobie Brothers play like Hall and Oates and Def Leppard a ton of times because bands usually have downtime when they're out there where they can talk and whether it's rehearsals or shows, there's always some downtime. So between that, tons of phone calls and Zoom calls and everything over the course of a couple of years, I was able to have them, you know, weave their stories together and and put together really for the first time ever a complete history of of where they came from and and where they are today.
0: Because you mentioned that, you know, other bands may have gotten more kind of cred or whatever, but the Doobie Brothers, sometimes it's easy to forget how omnipresent their music was, especially on the radio. And they were, you know, when I was growing up, like the people's favorite, everybody loved that
2: band. That's what I always loved about them was no matter what they were all, they were a people's band and it didn't matter what the critics thought they were there for the people and they toured. I mean, they would play hundreds of shows a year for decades and when, you know, the most amazing thing to me was that in 1975, they're starting off, what's their biggest tour at that point, uh, behind an album called Stampede, and two or three shows in, Tom Johnston uh, gets really sick. I mean, to a point where he's got a bail on the tour. They don't know if he's ever going to come back. They're three shows in, and they're panicking. Pat's like, well, maybe this was just it. Maybe this was the Doobie Brothers. This is how far we got. There's no shame in what we've done. We're, we're big, we can go out on top kind of thing, you know? And Jeff Baxter, who they had newly acquired from Steely Dan, because Steely Dan had retired from touring, he's now a guitar player in the Dubies. He says, well, wait a minute. Let's not, you know, let's not give up that quickly. He goes, we can, let's try and get through the tour. He goes, we had this background singer in Steely Dan who's obviously no longer touring either right now. And he's good. He's like 21 years old. He can play some keyboards. He's a good background singer. Maybe between him, we can all flesh out vocals and get through it. Well, that was Michael McDonald and they bring him in. And of course uh, they do the tour. Uh, he's very versatile they you know they like his work style a lot and then michael approaches them and says hey you know, michael who's very sheepish and and very you know, even today so modest says to pat you know i, I would it be okay if i shared a song i've been kind of knocking around that's like yeah was, the whole band ethos is about put it out there you know that was really i think what makes the doobie so special is that idea that it's sort of egoless and that whatever anybody wants to contribute they can at least put it out there and michael sits down and plays taken into the streets and they realize they also have a songwriter in him you know and and from there Doobie brothers Mach two you know is launched and, and tom does kind of come back in for a tour but realizes that it's a different band now tom goes and carves a uh, successful solo career for a couple of albums and there's this new doobie brothers you know that has a whole different sound and a lot of people kind of split on which they favor you know and even to this day I, I love the fact that they're as we speak here today they're touring and michael's in the group and so they're playing everything you get the whole you know 50-year career which is an incredible show and, you know, Michael, I spoke to a lot for this book. Uh, I decided to expand just beyond Tom and Pat because the Doobies really are this very tribal kind of outfit with so many different personalities. Ted Templeman, of course, who produced their biggest hits and um, all the different players. So with the, with Tom and Pat's permission, I spoke to a lot of people for the book and parts of it then become almost an oral history. And Michael McDonald was as generous and giving of his time and energy and, and um, experiences as anybody. He, was, he really make, made the book extra special, I thought.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of this in your book. And I'm curious the Tom Johnson side. When they brought him in, they effectively had to make that decision, right? And we're going to move on. And did he, I mean, he was in pretty bad shape, but did he harbor any ill will? You know,
2: what I think happened was when Tom came, when he got healthy again and his, his ailments were sort of cured, he comes back to the group and they're working on an album and taking to the streets. And they toured all of them. They did one tour. And to hear Pat say it, Pat said it was like the greatest tour ever because it got you everything. It got you, Tom. It got you, Michael. It's sort of like what they're doing right now. And I think Tom felt, he describes it eloquently in the book that, you know, he felt like it was just a really different band and he didn't feel that his play that he had the same place in there. And he felt that maybe it was his time to move on. Not that he was going to stop making music. I mean, again, he made some really great solo records, but he just felt like things had changed to a point where he wasn't as comfortable anymore. And it wasn't that they, they asked him to leave They were happy to have him back. But I think Tom on his own decided at that time, it was time to move
0: on. And he did. I agree that you look at the the hits before I listen to the music. Jesus is just all right with me, China Grove. And then, you know, taking it to the streets and minute by minute. And it's almost two different bands, right? Totally. And I'm just wondering, like, how that that worked in terms of just his dynamic. And, you know, was it just, you know, you mentioned he felt uncomfortable. So he just decided to go solo. Yeah,
2: he went solo. And then um, at the end of the 70s, early 80s, there was an opportunity to come back. There was a, a one of the members put together um, a benefit for soldiers and they wanted every do be involved. And then and, and Tom had gone appeared with him a couple of times. He'd go up for a song or two. So it wasn't like you know, he and Pat were still in touch. They'd run into each other. There was no bad blood there. And then when they got back together for the big reunion, and now at that point, Michael's solo career, because the Doobies had kind of retired for a couple of years, and Michael's solo career had blossomed. So he wasn't going to go back out as a Doobie. So the, the timing really was right for Tom to reconnect in the early 80s. And there was no looking back. I mean, they've been on the road ever since. And, you know, before Tom went back in, they would play Tom's songs, but other people sang them. Michael might sing, take me in your arms. You know, there was just, they would split things up so that people could still hear songs like China Grove and long train running just without Tom's vocal. But once Tom came back into the early eighties, then it was that, then they no longer played Michael's songs and just focused on the sort of early classic doobies from from the first edition.
0: And when you talk about the reunion, was that the uh, the proper band reunion for the um, admittance into the rock and roll hall of fame?
2: Well, the band reunion happened really early in the early 80s. And and so um, it was way before the Hall of Fame. And the Hall of Fame is only a couple of years old. I mean, that that just happened. And that was another thing, too. People would say, how are the Doobie Brothers not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? You know, we can have that's a whole separate conversation we could have. And I wrote a couple of editorials about it, just sort of making the case, you know, that taking out being a fan, but like, let's look at what they've done and what they've survived. And how do you not? So no, the original reunion was just about uh, a friendship being rekindled with Tom and Pat and looking at each other, I think in the eye, honestly saying, and you know what, we can do this again. We can go out. We can, and they started making new music and and, and really solid new albums. So, you know, Tom's out of the band at that point, some totals probably eight years or so, but once he came back, they were revitalized and energized and and started off on this whole new path that they've been on ever since.
0: And it's interesting for the people who think, oh, that sounds awfully deep. There's a lot of little fun bits in your book that I pulled out that, first of all, you mentioned the motorcycles. These guys happen to be a favorite of the Hells Angels. Isn't that right?
2: Well, that's a little misconception too. They were definitely a favorite of, of, they were kind of a biker band really early on up in um, the San Jose area, mostly because of a little... Um, roadhouse up in the mountains. They used to play called the Chateau Liberté, which a lot of bands played. You are and I mean a lot of different Bay Area bands played up there. Moby Grape and a lot of bikers hung out there, along with students and and other kinds of people as well. But yeah, the bikers always did like those guys because the Doobies early on played songs that were kind of edgier, you know, rocking down the highway. I mean, it, it it sort of was a soundtrack to what a biker might be thinking or doing, and the fact that those guys like motorcycles themselves. Um, there was infinity there as well. Um, they didn't really run with angels necessarily, but there were other biker gangs up there um, that loved the Doobies. That I think the band had some sort of um, minor connection to. But in general, it, it, I think it was better for their image to be thought of as that kind of band. It made them tough. It made them a little bit different. You know, made them rugged, and it made them cool. I mean, to be motorcycle enthusiasts and being a rock and roll band in the early '70s—that's a pretty potent combination.
0: And and I love the bit um, where you know, I found out that their name is exactly what I thought it was about. And a lot of the band members will, yeah, well, you know, but the Doobie Brothers is about Doobies.
2: They were playing a show, I think their first show up at the Chateau Liberté, which I mentioned, and they didn't have a name. They didn't even have a name yet. Mm-hmm. Tom and Pat had started jamming and there were this loose group of guys who were starting to kind of build some songs. There was a house on 12th Street in San Jose, where they all lived. It was Tom's place. It was like a frat house kind of thing. You know, Chateau Liberté wanted to know what to call the band. And another one of the housemates there said, well, all you guys do is sit around smoking pot all day, call yourselves the Duby Brothers. (laughs) They did it as kind of a joke for that night. But after that night, no one really thought to change it. (laughs) People kind of liked it. Uh, So it stuck, you know, and there's no great mystique behind it it was that simple what's really funny about that house on 12th street which there's now a, a plaque up honoring the fact that it really is the birthplace of the doobie brothers back before they even called themselves the doobie brothers when they were just jamming in like 19, you know, 70, 71 they would have street parties where they would go out and play on 12th street and both tom and pat described to me how at one of these street parties they were kind of it was almost like a battle of the bands where one end of the street was this folk duo and at the other end was them and they were kind of both didn't you get the the crowds down by them the folk duo was stevie nicks and lindsey buckingham buckingham nicks at that point who were just starting out there so the thought that you had those artists on that street on this summer day just kind of trying to win over the local favor is uh is such an incredible moment there's a lot of moments like that in the book where you know especially with, with bands like that i think some of the best stories are always on the way up you know what i mean because they're not They're still in touch with things. When Pete Townsend shows up one night and wants to play with them, the first year of their existence, Townsend likes them, Townsend gets them, you know, is is a really cool moment. Uh, Their first, their earliest tours are fascinating as they learn how to become, um, you know, a group of, of touring musicians. Opening for T Rex and, and all these other groups and stuff. So it's, uh, I always love hearing about the early years because it's when there were less rules and it was just a crazier time. You know, pre MTV, pre cell phones, all of that. It's a much more primitive, earthy existence.
0: You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media.
1: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
0: We're speaking with Chris Epting, and he is the co author of a brand new book on the Doobie Brothers called Long Train Running. He's also written a bunch of other super cool books. You should check them out. They're all on All Music Books, by the way. And I want to talk about some of those. We had mentioned before that you found a process in working with other artists, and you mentioned John Oates. There's also Leif Garrett.
2: Leif Garrett, I have to say. Oh, is it Leif Yeah, he'd be the first to correct it. So in his stead, I will say Leif Garrett. Okay,
0: that, well, I'll take that one. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned uh, Def Leppard, and there's a bass player for Tesla.
2: Yeah, Brian Wheat. Uh, that's just a
0: crazy wild list. Like, everybody is covered there.
2: I just finished a book with Dave Mason that comes out uh, next May, which I'm super excited about. But I love Dave Mason and that. Um, and that's funny. You asked earlier how these things happen. I got a call one day from Chris Simmons, um, Pat's wife and they were in Hawaii and I was home and she says, "Hey, she goes, we had dinner with Dave Mason last night and he's thinking of maybe writing this book and we told him he should do it with you, so you need to talk to him." So sometimes, it's like anything. If you do right by somebody and the opportunity presents itself, you you will get referred like that and that's how I got to working with Dave. But um, but yeah, each book has its own process. You know, you're dealing with very different artistic personality. So you have to approach each one as a unique subject and figure out what their rhythm for work is and how you're going to get the best stuff out of them. The one thing that is absolutely a through line in all of it, though, is that you do become a bit of a therapist when you write books like this. When, when John Oates, when he finished his book, he said, you know, he goes, that was regressive therapy. He goes, you, what you did, the mood you created for me to talk. He said, I shared so many things, many of which didn't even go on the book. Of they either weren't relevant or weren't appropriate or whatever. He goes, but we had to go through all that stuff to get the book stuff. He goes, and I really had to feel safe and I had to trust you. And I had to know that nothing would ever leave our private little bubble unless we both decided it would. And, and that's exactly true. And I'm like that with all these folks, they have to really believe that you're, you got their back, you know, and that you're not going to share anything out of school and you're going to focus on writing a good book that they want to write. Not that I want to write that they want to write.
0: Well, you've written some other great books where I think you can do whatever you want. And uh, it's obvious (laughs) uh, that you're a big music fan. And there's a book called rock and roll in orange County, music, madness, and memories. And there are a lot of great musical acts from that area in Southern Cal. Can you give our listeners a quick who's who's list?
2: Sure. I live, uh, I I mean, I've lived in Orange County for more than 20 years and, you know, you hear a lot about LA, the music scene, which is, of course, is, is illustrious and interesting just like New York is, but Orange County, which is kind of the sur- suburban collective of 33 cities south of LA has a, a great history as well. I mean, you can go all the way back to you know groups like the Righteous Brothers uh, are, are from uh, are from Orange County. I mean, you know, there's a the punk scene in Orange County in the late 70s, early 80s from Social Distortion up through TSOL up through Avenged Sevenfold. I mean, there's, there's that story. Um, You've got venues down here that go back to the 1940s and 50s, like the Golden Bear, which would have brought, you know, everyone from um, Janis Joplin to Steve Martin to Linda Ronstadt down here. You had, you know, Led Zeppelin playing UC Irvine in 1969. I mean, so, so there's a story here. I mean, Kiss is the very first stadium show Kiss ever played was Angel Stadium in Anaheim. And that was a huge thing for their career. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot that's gone on down here. I mean, Dick Dale basically invented surf music uh, down at the Rendezvous Ballroom in Balboa. So you've got that story you know whole surf music scene here so there's a lot that's gone on i mean the song louie louie the garage band classic was actually written in what today is a parking lot in anaheim (laughs) california it's an old club called the harmony park ballroom back in the 1950s uh you know you've got leo fender you've got that story you've got rickenbacker guitars that are based in santa ana so there really is a very rich layered history of rock and roll uh in orange county and i loved writing a book about it it was fascinating to learn about things that i knew a little bit about you know elvis presley's uh you know marriage to priscilla falling apart in orange county when Mm. she runs off with his martial arts instructor i mean you know things that were just really fascinating so yeah orange county has a great legacy musically and uh it was fun to write that book
0: Yeah, I bet. And that that leads us into some of your pop uh, uh, music culture books. Um, These feature some really great stories and uh, some great titles. Led Zeppelin crashed here the rock and roll landmarks of North America. I read that a while ago, years ago, and it's a super fun read. It also has a great book cover, so I congrats on that. Thanks. But actually where they crashed was a bit tonier and would become a legendary hangout.
2: Yeah, I mean, that book was actually playing off a title, I had done a series of these books, which were kind of offbeat travel books, the first one was called James Dean died here. And it was uh, about that little speck on the map up by Shalom California where James Dean died and the book included about 600 places like that places you might pass every day but not know. that's where James Dean died or that's where Marilyn Monroe's dress billowed up in the seven-year itch or whatever. And I've always been fascinated by places like that, places you walk by every day, but you don't know what took place there. That's really a driving passion for me. So I wrote a number of those books. Uh, Marilyn Monroe died here but died was spelled d-y-e-d referring to where she became a blonde you know things Mm -hmm. like that and Led Zeppelin Crash here was born out of that and so there were a number of of Led Zeppelin sites in that book from of course the you know the the Hyatt house aka the riot house in Los Angeles the Edgewater Inn up in Seattle where they would fish for you know fish right outside their rooms and then use those in uh, whatever they would call it in these terribly illicit ways with groupies and there's all kinds of stories in there but those books are, are super fun to write and the led zeppelin crash Tour was really fun to write because again as a music fan to go find all of those concert sites and studios and hotel rooms and album cover sites was was just amazing when you step into those locations all of a sudden you know, you're reminded of the music that you fell in love with growing up. And all of a sudden, you're either in the room where it it was made, you know, or, or the photograph, you know, your favorite album cover, you're standing right there at that spot. And you never listen to the music the same way again, at least I don't. Whenever I hear those songs, when I walk by the physical graffiti buildings on the Lower East Side of New York where Zeppelin shot that album cover, you know, I I hear um, Trampled Underfoot in my head, Hmm. you know, my favorite song on that album. When I, on the same stoop of that building where the stone shot the waiting on a friend video, I can picture Mick waiting for Keith on that stoop. And I'm a huge stones fan. That's my favorite band forever. So I always try and find extra kind of stones love in, in books that I write. So, you know, those, those books for me are fun um, on a lot of levels, mostly because it helps me reacquaint myself and, and reappreciate what got me there in the first place.
0: So, so that stoop in the video was the same as present or, um, physical graffiti same building wow i don't think i knew <laughs> Same that.
2: exact building wow yeah. i mean and that, yeah i know it's crazy it's crazy right?
0: and that that video is so iconic you know i can just see it when you mention the title i also saw you know mick sitting there until keith walks up cigarette of course and starts laughing and sits down and uh, it's-, it's
2: one of the best videos of that generation i think no big effects or anything just two buddies reconnecting on a stoop you know a stoop that happens to be uh, where Zeppelin shot one of the most, right. if not the most iconic album cover of theirs.
0: I, I do have to say my favorite take in that book, and I knew some of the story, but but yours really delved deeply into it in a way that, you know, as as a music fan and, and all of that, is the story behind E Street, which of course was Bruce Springsteen's band's name, but it's also a very cool little slice of history with one of the players in his early bands well no exactly
2: and and the thing is that whole area though that part of jersey i think there's the whole springsteen section in the book that book goes back a little ways you know i like for people to be able to retrace when you go to a place if you can retrace footsteps So when you go down to east street to, to be able to go to the different houses where springsteen lived like you say the house in david sanchez's uh life that that inspired them. Uh, It's great to be able to spend a day just connecting those dots. And certain areas allow you to do that. If you ever go to like Macon, Georgia, you know, the Allman Brothers is great sort of walking tour that we kind of lay out in the book that you can do there. Um, One of my favorites is in West Hollywood. If you're a Doors fan, that was sort of ground zero for the Doors back in the late 60s. And from recording studios and the band offices, there was a Mexican restaurant there. It's it's not open now, I don't think. It kind of opens and reopens. But the bathroom was actually the vocal booth, the men's room, where Morrison recorded the vocals for LA Woman, Mm. you know. And you guys, you go into that bathroom when mm-hmm. the restaurant was open, and you think like this was where, like this is where that happened, and that, and but but then whenever you again when you hear the song, it's like you you, you think about where you were. You know, you mentioned Springsteen. He used to in the early seventies played at a place called Max's Kansas City uh, in New York, which is today. Well, it was a delicatessen until like a, I think it closed about a month ago from when we're talking right now. But I remember walking by there with John Oates. We were just walking on the street. And I said, hey, this is where Max's used to be. And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, we played here one night back in, I think, 72 or 73 for three nights opening for Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) I thought, like, think about that night where for $1.50, you could have seen Hall and Oates opening for Bruce Springsteen. Mm -hmm. Not with the E Street Band. He was basically a folk act at that point, but still.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that movie nightclubbing the history of Max's or New York city punk actually, but we just talked to the director and it's, it's just one, um, a big documentary, uh, maybe New York city. It's great.
2: No, but I I have to see it. No, I'm glad you mentioned it. I have to see it. I I grew up in New York going to CBGB's in started going there in like 1977 while in high school, Max's heyday was almost over, but I went there a number of times in like 78 and 79, right before it closed, I went to go whenever Johnny Thunders would play. I was a big New York Dolls fan and still am. And when Thunders would play with or without the Heartbreakers, that was always a must see. And when he played at Max's, I saw him there once. It was really cool because the Dolls had played. They were like basically the house band there and the thought of like they were on that very stage you know when i and when i would go to the delicatessen that was there today or until recently i would go to the upstairs area and think my god this is where iggy played it's where the dolls played i mean they were, they were all right here you know i i go through a lot of that it happened here like a lot of that sensibility it's when I visit places is just standing there and absorbing kind of the energy, the past energy.
0: I know you mentioned you, were, you went to school in Boston as I did. And uh, I saw Johnny thunders quite a number of times at Jonathan Swift's in Harvard square. I don't know if you Absolutely. remember that place. And I did too. Did you? Oh God. Some I saw him show. there and at a place co-
2: uh, in Kenmore square called storyville. Mm-hmm. That was real. It's yep. a little nice jazz point. club. Yep. That
0: was a great bar,
2: but he played there. He would, he would, just show up in every place you know all these little clubs you get right next to him i remember at storyville we ended up carrying him to his cab because he was so out of it at the end he needed to be literally lifted to the cab out front he was so spent from the show and, and other things but.
0: yes yes same as that's jonathan swiss i mentioned that but um you yeah, know, i'm gonna ask you though um all of these pop culture books they're all so fun and fascinating and i have to ask is this just random trivia that's packed in your brain that you wanted to compile and share, or did you do research or some of both? I mean, how did these come about?
2: It's both. I mean, it's definitely a passion of mine. Uh, I mentioned the Marilyn Monroe dress, the seven year itch thing. I saw that in a newspaper when I was a little kid and it, I didn't know a lot about Marilyn Monroe, but I, I loved it. was showing this picture. And it said that the subway grate is at the Northwest corner of 52nd and Lexington Avenue. And I lo- I was, I was probably nine or 10 years old. And I read it and I thought, I just love the idea that no one walking over knows it. And the next time we were in the city, I went and found it. And I thought, wow, there's no sign or anything. And that literally sparked this thing where there must be thousands of places like that. you know. So just growing up, I would collectively research and visit and all. And then when it came time and I wrote the first book, which is uh, actually the James team out here was the first one, and the 20th anniversary edition comes out next year, gonna so be 20 years old. I had already amassed so much information that I could sort of, maybe 75% of it was done in my head and on notes and journals and all that. But then for the sequels, that was all new research. It was just me literally thinking, okay, what was big? What mattered? What do I care about? What were the What were the events that I think would be interesting to go visit? And I would just literally sit and make lists for myself and then go off and explore and see what was there.
0: Well, I think I've saved the best for last. And I have a very specific question for you. And it's, I think, one of the more recent books on uh, artifacts. But the title is The Ruby Slippers, Madonna's Bra, and Einstein's Brain, The Location of America's Pop Culture Artifacts. So I have to know, where is Madonna's bra? And did she only have one?
2: Well, there's a number of them. Uh, they were in a couple of museums. I think now they've they've moved around. The one I think I wrote about, I think today, is is at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But there's a wedding dress that I wrote about because I had a sort of a personal connection to it. In the 1984 very first MTV Music Awards show, she did "Like a Virgin." It was really kind of her coming out. I think on a massive scale as a as a as a an artist who was willing to push the boundaries. And she came out of a wedding cake. And I worked at that show. It was my first job coming out of college. And my job was I was assisting and helping write the script with Dan Aykroyd, who was co-hosting the show with Bette Midler. So I had this amazing access to everything that was going on, including her rehearsing that. And, and she came in to rehearsal uh, either too early or they were running behind or something. And she was getting, you know, she wasn't a big deal. She had no entourage. She came in alone. And my boss, who was directing the show, said, you got to get her out of here. I need an hour. He put cash in my hand and he goes, go, there's a, I forget where the restaurant was around the corner from Radio City. Get her out of here, feed her and bring her back in an hour and we'll be ready. And I said, what do I say? Because just <laughs> figure it out. He was very aggressive. So I did. And I said, to her, come on, we're going. And she said, well, where? I said, don't, like, don't even, just come on, come on, come on, come on. And I did it. And, and, and you know over the course of 45 minutes or, or an hour or whatever um had this really kind of cool conversation over a sandwich with her delivered her back and watched her do that performance and she had told me all about it before what mm. she was going to do so that dress to me seeing now that that's in the book i think that's at a, at a store out in universal city so her bras got a couple of different places i mean that book just so you know it was my publisher's idea he goes look you've written all these books about places what if you do a book about the artifacts related to those places which mm. i thought was a good idea i mean einstein's brain does exist on a series of slides at princeton university they carved his brain up for further analysis um the ruby slippers of course there are four pair well one's currently um at large because it was stolen so three pair <laughs> so i cut in that book at that time it was written about almost 20 years ago you know, one was at the Smithsonian, one was at, I think, in Liza Minnelli's collection. So I would sort of outline where these things were. In most cases, you could go see them. Um, but it was a fun book because it got you to a lot of offbeat museums and oddball collections and, you know, just uh, places where you could go, Hold in some cases, even hold a piece of history, you know, which is important for me as well. So all those books, that one included, became glorious excuses to go out in search of really interesting things that make america a unique place to grow up in and live and that's also what drives a lot of my passion i am fiercely proud of my country and all the crazy things we've given the world from hamburgers to Elvis Presley, um, everything in between, you know, and so it's fun to claim a lot of those things. Uh, and not all of them good. I mean, the, the history books have a lot of hard moments in there as well, but moments where our our country had to go, you know, go through hard growing periods, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. different changes and evolutions and stuff. It's all part of the mix. But, but in the end, I think the fact that you can visit so many of these places and things uh, that connect you to just great art and ingenuity and controversy and scandals and things like that. It's a real, it's a fun way to travel. It's a fun way to learn about history. It's a fun thing to, to expose your kids to. In many cases, it's a great way to teach history to young people. I speak at a lot of schools today, and kids are hungry for his, history to be fun, you know, and told in a way that is compelling and uh, relatable to them. So for me, it's it's just all part of this journey of, of finding interesting places and things and people. And, and revealing something about those things that you hopefully didn't know about before.
0: Well, we all owe you a lot for keeping the rock and roll road trip alive. This is my last question for you. You mentioned you have a new book coming out. Tell us about Only You Know and I Know.
2: Only You Know and I Know is Dave Mason's memoir. And... Dave Mason, for those who don't know, was a founding member of Traffic, along with Steve Winwood and Jim Capaldi and Chris Wood back in 1967. Traffic, if you don't know, was one of the most heralded bands on the scene, which is saying a lot when you consider they came together the year Sergeant Pepper came out. Mm-hmm. And a lot was happening in England, but Traffic, largely on the strength of Steve Winwood's reputation in the Spencer Davis group, was a highly anticipated band. And you had everybody from Hendrix to the Beatles to the Stones breathlessly awaiting what this band was going to do. And Dave Mason co-wrote a lot of their uh, better-known songs on the first couple of albums, including Feeling Alright, which went on to become, of course, covered by like 150 different artists plus. And, and from there, though, Dave goes off on his own and, and, and creates, I think, one of the most interesting and compelling solo careers of the 70s and 80s there's a lot of struggle in the book there's a lot of it there's an addiction story there's a record company story that's not very pretty but through it all is a guy who is just madly in love with guitar playing who is a an artist in the sense that he never it's always about the music it's always about being on the road someone who has played in front of three hundred thousand people and 30 people and puts on the same show you know because he believes that people come to see him deserve that and I'm really proud of the book. I, I was always a big Dave Mason fan, and it's. I have to tell you, it's surreal, and and I've been, most of the groups, all the groups I've written about, I've been big fan of before, and it's a surreal experience when you get that kind of key to the kingdom, and all of a sudden, Dave Mason is, you know, a foot away from you, telling you about a certain thing that you might have heard a rumor about, or, or breaking down that session with Jimi Hendrix, where they played all along the watchtower you know and Dave will then pick up up his guitar and say well it was like this and then you're hearing what Hendrix heard and it's like all of a sudden you are connected to all these other people and places you know that you're that you've read about growing up so as someone who loves music I am always really humbled to get to know these people on these intimate levels and I, I don't take it lightly I really don't it's uh I take it really seriously, and I always say to these guys, "You're literally putting your life in my hands." <laughs> you know, you want this to, to get done in a way that you're proud of, and that your family and fans are proud of. And I, it's a, it's serious to me. It's serious business. You know, it's like you're really, um, you know, books are forever. You know, once that thing comes out, that's it. There's no turning back. So I take that step really carefully, and, and I did it with Dave's Dave's we've been working on it for a couple of years now. Um, It's all but finished now, set for a May 2023 release. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about it.
0: Well, maybe we can have you back when that's out. It's been a great chatting with you and you know,
2: I would love that, man. Thank you. You're, you're a great conversationalist and you do terrific homework as well.
0: Thanks for contributing. We appreciate it. And good luck with your books. Anytime. It was a pleasure. Thank you. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at FullSound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one of a kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.